I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. Major geopolitical shifts are underway in the Middle East as the U.S. reduces its presence there after failures in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as Washington pivots towards the Indo-Pacific, China has begun filling that void with a slew of economic and diplomatic moves, mediating regional conflicts and strengthening ties with Arab partners who have shown more agency and autonomy in the wake of NATO's proxy war on Russia through Ukraine. Joining me to discuss the implications of China's rising influence in the Middle East is Ibrahim Hashem, Asia Global Fellow at the Asia Global University Institute at the University of Hong Kong and former strategy advisor to the chairman of the Abu Dhabi Executive Office. Thank you so much, Ibrahim, uh, for uh, coming on. Billions of dollars then in the past uh, few days signed off at the Arab-China Business Conference. Well, what is this business conference uh, and uh, what's the significance of all these uh, deals being signed as, well, Western Europe... Uh, you know, Germany's in recession. This business uh, conference uh, brings uh, together the Arab uh, businesses, the Arab entrepreneurs, uh, the Arab uh, uh, state-owned enterprises with those uh, from uh, China, uh, not only China mainland, but also uh, from Hong Kong, to explore opportunities, uh, to see how they can actually work uh, together, especially now uh, that um, uh, both sides are really more, getting more familiar with each other, and both sides uh, see uh, opportunities uh, in, in, in their relative uh, or uh, respective uh, markets. Uh, for example, uh, the Arab world, uh, especially the uh, Gulf uh, region, is the major um, uh, region of uh, uh, oil and gas. It's a major uh, supplier of uh, crude oil uh, to China. China gets around 40% of its uh, oil imports uh, from the region. And uh, uh, for the Arabs, uh, um, China is a major uh, crude oil uh, market. And the, these deals are not really only related to energy, oil, and gas. Uh, they are uh, really broad and uh, 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 really long uh, ranging. Uh, they uh, include technology, innovation, um, um, uh, infrastructure, and so on and so forth. As you know, the Arab countries, uh, almost all of them are part of BRI, uh, the most ambitious uh, initiative in human history. It's um, more than 10 uh, times uh, the Marshall uh, Plan, the post-World War II Marshall Plan. And there are so many opportunities uh, provided by this initiative. And also, uh, this initiative uh, has a vision to really bring uh, the world uh, closer uh, together. The Belt and Road Initiative, of course, is that's not what you hear about in arguable NATO propaganda, NATO media propaganda. And aren't the Arab partners worried about, uh, I mean, I don't know what happened to it, but Joe Biden's uh, reported consequences for Mohammed bin Salman if uh, Saudi Arabia didn't do what it was told to about uh, oil production. No one's uh, scared about what Biden might do? Well, I'm not sure um, whether the regional leaders uh, and the regional uh, people really pay attention to what foreigners uh, say about their bilateral uh, relations with uh, China or with any other uh, nation. Uh, these are really um, uh, sovereign decisions made by sovereign countries. Uh, so the Arab countries, uh, they really look uh, into the future. They want to close the really tragic, painful uh, chapter of the last 20 years uh, since uh, 2003. As we all know, Iraq was invaded. And in my opinion, it was, uh, it was uh, of course, illegally invaded. And uh, Iraq has been uh, destroyed. And since then, 
the region has been going through a lot of mess, a lot of uh, chaos. And of course, uh, around 2011, we had the Arab Spring and the uh, the atrocities of uh, the Arab, the so-called Arab uh, Spring. Uh, so the Arabs are already aware of what has happened over the last 20 years, and they have learned really hard uh, lessons. Uh, now, the only way for the Arab world is to really uh, go uh, up and to go up is to really close that sad chapter, um, chapter of conflicts, uh, turmoil and so on and so forth, and really focus on development and on uh, 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 progress, uh, prosperity and so on and so forth. And this is where China comes into play. If you look at China and look at the Arab world, and if you look at the two uh, the economies of the two sides, you will see so much synergy between the two sides. Um, for example, um, um, uh, the Arab world is full of natural resources. Uh, we uh, export, we, we have 40% uh, of the world's uh, proven reserves, oil proven reserves. And China is the largest oil uh, importer, and it's expected to continue importing uh, crude oil for yeah, a but long Of course, uh, famously, famously, oil has been a curse and a uh, opportunity for uh, this region I'm speaking to you from. Precisely as you explained, the uh, uh, mass killing that followed the uh, illegal invasion of uh, Iraq by Britain and the United States, etc. I mean, Prince Abdel bin, uh, Abdelaziz bin Salman, the uh, Saudi minister, said it's not a zero-sum game. But what if the United States wants to make it a zero-sum game as to who can be a partner of the uh, Arab nations and who can't be in the, in the Middle East? Well, what happens then? Uh, I'm not sure if they. I'm not sure whether they want to uh, dictate whether they want first of all, and then whether they can. Uh, we are in a totally different world. Uh, the relations of uh, the Arab uh, uh, nations are not determined by foreign powers. They are determined by the Arab uh, uh, countries uh, uh, themselves, and the the Arabs do not really look for. Uh, confrontation with any uh, power, uh, uh, whether it be regional or uh, global. Uh, the Arabs are really now focusing on developing their economies, first of all, stabilizing the region, and then gradually developing the region and providing prosperity uh, to their uh, people. Um, I agree with the uh, uh, prince, uh, Abdelaziz bin uh, Salman, uh, when he, he says that it's, an, it's not a zero-sum game. And um, we are not really in a situation where we have to pick sides. We don't have to pick sides. Uh, um, if you look at all the statements uh, made over the last five years, you will see that the, there's a really clear pattern. And that pattern is related to Arabs' desire for strategic autonomy. We are not really in a situation where, you know, we have to really listen to um, uh, diktats coming from outside of uh, the region or from outside of uh, our countries. And I, I would assume uh, the decision makers, the politicians in, in the West and in the United States and Europe uh, would understand. Um, because if you look at the largest economy in, in PPP terms, it's already China, the largest trading um, a nation, it's already China, um, uh, the largest manufacturing uh, nation, it's uh, China. So we Arabs, we want to develop our region. We want to provide, you know, uh, prosperity uh, to our uh, people. If we want to do that, 
where do we go and get, you know, uh, support manufactured uh, goods, um, uh, economic relations, and so on and so forth? China is uh, uh, organically growing, and because of our proximity or being in the, in the center of the uh, of the globe, we are uh, taking advantage of our situation. We want to really just, you know, exploit the natural resources that we have, and we want to really tap into uh, the developments happening in China and in Asia in general. Uh, China is now one of the leading nations in innovation, in AI, uh, uh, 5G, and so on and so forth. So for us, if we want to continue uh, growing economically, um, uh, why not just, you know, uh, uh, have a stronger relations? And these relations are not really new, and they are not really based only on economics and trade and commerce. If you just go look at the history of our relations, the Arab-China uh, relations, they go really back uh, uh, a long time, 2,000 years, so back to the first uh, Silk Road. And uh, historically, we have really developed uh, deep ties. Uh, I live in Guangzhou, uh, China. Um, a lot of people talk about Islam and Islam being banned in China and so on and so forth. In Guangzhou, there's a mosque um, called Haisheng. Uh, this mosque was built in the 7th uh, century by the uncle of our prophet, um, uh, Sa'ad bin al-As. And this mosque is still existing. And, and this mosque is really uh, one of the oldest mosques in the world and the, ol the oldest mosque in China. When I went there and I uh, exchanged ideas with the other uh, Muslims, the Chinese Muslims, I realized that they were actually having... A happy life, a very prosperous uh, life, and a lot of them were owning and uh, running uh, businesses. So just going back to the point of, you know, why just, you know, have this relation with uh, China. It's not only China. China, why China? It's because China is growing rapidly and it's providing us with opportunities. Yeah, no, so, I mean, you're very or, clear there. And um, actually, I wanted to get on to that fake uh, hoax news from, uh, from Xinjiang that uh, we covered here on Going Underground uh, as NATO Nation Media was spreading that propaganda about so-called genocide in uh, Xinjiang. But, you know, your screen's stopping occasionally. I don't know whether that's the sanctions on Huawei technology. You know there's a battle going on, uh, frankly. I mean, uh, I mean, what's the significance of uh, MBS uh, meeting with uh, Blinken? Blinken goes straight there um, to uh, Saudi Arabia and then calls Putin immediately afterwards. Is this more proof that the zero-sum game is over, but because of these trade ties, if it ever became a zero-sum game, the Global South, the Belt and Road Initiative, the rejuvenation of, the, as you said, the millennia-old relationship is, is the first choice? Um, I'm not sure whether um, there are choices to be made here. Um, I think the region as a whole and the regional leaders and people, they want to be open to all options available. They don't want to restrict their, their uh, options. So you're talking about the meetings, the recent uh, meetings, um, and this is also a sign of uh, the positive neutrality of the region, of the Arabs. We don't want to be passive, uh, passively neutral. We don't want to be, you know, sit, uh, uh, sitting uh, uh, by not really contributing to global peace, to global prosperity, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's something um, you notice when there was this uh, Arab summit, the recent, the, la the latest Arab uh, summit. Um, the president of uh, Ukraine was invited to make his case to the Arabs. But then the next day, or a couple of days later, the minister of uh, 
uh, interior from uh, Russia arrived, although he was sanctioned by, by the West, by U.S. and Western uh, countries, but he was welcomed in our uh, region. Why? It's a signal to the world that we are not really taking sides, and we don't have to take sides. Um, if there are really, um, uh, for example, in the case of uh, Ukraine, the Ukraine conflict, if there is a possibility of the Arabs to contribute to finally, you know, bring in an end to this really tragic um, um, uh, conflict, why not? We offer our uh, services and we will try to uh, mediate and help and facilitate. Um, 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 and that's our role. And we don't want to pick sides because we know that if we pick sides, we will be uh, losing. Uh, we will be losing whether we choose the West or uh, China or any other uh, party. So for us, we are really um, uh, interested, determined to maintain this strategic autonomy. And uh, we have every right to maintain that autonomy. And I think at this point in time, nobody in the world, nothing in the world can actually um, stop us from being um, strategically autonomous. Uh, in other words, if, th if there are people in the West, in, in the United States or Europe, who have uh, hegemonic ambitions, they want to really come and dominate the region. Well, if you ask me, over the last 20 years since the Iraq war, this is what's been uh, happening. They have been trying to really dominate the region. They have been trying to really hijack the sovereignty of uh, the region, and they failed, and they failed uh, you know, miserably. And now, at this point in time, that the region is actually recovering and getting out of the misery put by really foreigners, um, uh, um, um, the the region, the regional leaders, the regional people cannot really um, uh, give up this uh, strategic autonomy. So, if, just going back to your point, it looks like there's a clash of visions between what the region wants, so what the regional people, regional leaders want for their region, and what some people, not everybody, some people in the United States and in the West uh, want for the region. But at this point in time, we are experiencing dramatic transformations, not only in our region, um, so regional level, it's uh, the dramatic changes happening at the global level, sub-global levels. At this point in time, I don't think uh, um, anybody has power to stop uh, the Arabs from really developing and pursuing their uh, development uh, programs, regardless of what others uh, think about these uh, programs. Ebrahim Hashim, I'll stop you there. More from the Asia Global Fellow at the Asia Global Institute of the University of Hong Kong after this break.
Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the former strategy advisor to the chairman of the Abu Dhabi Executive Office here in the UAE, Ibrahim Hashem. You're talking about sovereignty for the Arab world, a regained sovereignty for this region. But I don't know whether you remember, well, you know, when you were not in Guangzhou, but were in Abu Dhabi advising uh, the executive office in, in the UAE here, you know, there are 5,000 maybe U.S. soldiers at a base, at Al Dafra Air Base near Abu Dhabi. Uh, I don't know how many soldiers, U.S. soldiers, are in Saudi Arabia. 3,000 at Prince Sultan Air Base? So you're saying, yeah, there's this great new sovereignty. I mean, uh, you think at any of these meetings people ask, why, have you, why, are you, uh, why are the Americans using your countries as air bases, war bases? Oh, right. So uh, one thing we got to keep in mind, when, when there is uh, um, a group of uh, troops in one land, uh, we, we must really recognize that there is a mutual understanding, a mutual interest between the two sides. So the region for some time uh, has been trying to develop its own uh, security military uh, capacity and the security um, agreements or security relations or military relations that you know the Arabs have with the United States. I don't think they will end. They will stop. They have been uh, um, uh, useful, uh, helpful uh, for uh, both sides. So uh, at this point in time, I don't think the Arabs want to just end everything and just you know say, okay, we want to be sovereign. We don't want anybody to be involved in uh, our region. I, I don't know. know. I don't know how they're helpful because a lot of people would ask that. And do you think there are growing questions about, say, the Patriot missile purchasing by the Saudi Arabian government when the drone attack happened on Aramco's facilities and failed? I mean, I was here 20 years ago at a defense exhibition where Raytheon were marketing these Patriot missiles. Do you think a growing understanding and comprehension in the Arab world that these multi-billion dollar contracts, arguably, some might say, keeping these American arms companies in business, it might not be the wisest way to spend money and it's better to make deals with China and the global south and BRICS countries than just keep supporting the U.S. defense industry uh, infrastructure? Well, uh, these relations, so the security and military relations are uh, long-term and strategic, and they are not really about one system. Uh, they are not about the Patriot uh, 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 defense uh, system. Uh, they are really wide-ranging, and uh, they include a lot of uh, items. Uh, and uh, the Arabs are not really asking anybody to come and defend them. Uh, um, uh, the Arabs have been getting most of their weaponry from uh, from the West, from the United States, and from Europe. And of course, uh, to have uh, 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 to uh, be more strategically autonomous, you will gradually. Uh, try to diversify the sources of uh, security. So, um, um, as you know, that recently there have been growing agreements, contracts between the Arab region, so some other uh, some Arab uh, countries, uh, with other uh, uh, nations, uh, with Russia, with China, with Brazil, with India, and so on and so forth. So these are all efforts to really ensure that we have a diverse um, uh, uh, set of uh, uh, military. Um, so, uh, security uh, suppliers so that we are not really beholden uh, uh, by anybody. We are not at the mercy of anybody. And this is one major lesson I think uh, the Arab uh, uh, people and the Arab uh, leaders have. I mean, Blinken uh, and Biden are basically, uh, I'm not sure they say officially, they kind of uh, pussyfoot around what they think, but, you know, they kind of condemn normalization 
between Arab countries and Syria and Iran. What do you think the Arab, I mean, China obviously must just laugh at the fact the United States is condemning what amounts to peace. What do you think Arab countries think when uh, at the State uh, Department people go, what, you know, we should, no what do you think about normalization? And they just go, look, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be normalizing ties. Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they shouldn't be normalizing ties with these countries. They should be eternal enemies, I don't know. I think officially they haven't actually said this. So officially they have been saying, okay, uh, this is good. Uh, we hope that it's going to be benefiting uh, the region and so on and so forth. Uh, but of course, unofficially, uh, 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 we have heard some statements made that, you know, this is maybe uh, going to be detrimental to their position uh, within the region. Uh, but after all, uh, these decisions are sovereign decisions uh, made based on the interests of the Arabs of the region. Iran is part of the region. Uh, so the both sides of the Gulf um, historically uh, for a long period of time have had a lot of cultural uh, diffusion, uh, uh, infusion, um, a lot of cultural civilizational uh, exchanges. And uh, um, we have really strong uh, uh, trade uh, ties and so on and so forth. And now that we are really realizing that maybe at this point in time to really ensure stability for our region and to grow together, um, maybe we have to really explore uh, options that we, uh, both sides, uh, we just, you know, uh, uh, find uh, a common ground. Well, trade, but I have to, to say trade out. is difficult in this region because of Caesar sanctions, of Western European uh, and American sanctions. Because you keep talking about sovereignty, but you know that the United States will start saying, will start sanctioning uh, countries in this uh, region if they do business as they please uh, down to their uh, sovereign will. I'm not sure how many Arab countries really following the Caesar sanctions. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure whether anybody within the region following the Caesar uh, sanctions. Uh, I know... Uh, you might have to just explain what they are to our audience because they're not given much publicity, uh, the, uh, you know... Uh, unprecedented level of uh, attempts to hurt populations in the Arab world and the yeah, Middle East. I think the, the, the sanctions, not, uh, these are not really uh, UN um, uh, enacted uh, sanctions. They are unilaterally put by, uh, by United States uh, and... Uh, and Brussels, nations, Washington uh, and Brussels and London. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, uh, so for us, um, uh, we don't have to follow these uh, sanctions. Uh, why should we follow sanctions uh, uh, put in place uh, uh, by you put in place unilaterally by United States or uh, Europe? And they are, in our opinion, they are really just you know harming the people of uh, Syria, not really harming the government. The government can actually just you know work out ways to to survive, and it has survived more than ten years, and it's the people that have been really suffering. And uh, the regional people, the regional countries, and the regional uh, leaders want to really help uh, um, uh, alleviate this suffering that is happening in, 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 in Syria. Uh, I personally think this is a major tragedy. What happened to Syria is a major uh, tra tragedy. And uh, uh, the Arabs uh, and different parts of uh, the Arab world want to do whatever they can to really accelerate the process of renormalizing uh, re the situation in Syria and bringing uh, Syria back to the global stage actually, and removing all these uh, sanctions. Actually, and, can I just say, though, what, what's happened to... The reconstruction work. What's happened to all the Islamist violence that used to be leading the news before the uh, invasion, uh, before 
the war between Russia and the U.S. and through Ukraine. What, what's happened to it all? Why has it suddenly stopped? Have you been suspicious of it? Are people a bit suspicious that all these uh, Islamist groups seem to have just disappeared since the United States focused on one spot, Kiev? Um, I think it's uh, not a secret uh, who uses uh, these people, um, uh, terrorism in general, in our region uh, to advance uh, their uh, interests. Um, and these people, um, so the Islamists and, and the others, the Al-Qaeda and the Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups and others, uh, they have been used as uh, tools to really destabilize certain parts of our region to, um, as in an attempt to really uh, hijack uh, their uh, sovereignty. And uh, these Islamists, uh, the regional countries have been demanding that whoever, you know, whatever country has nationals in Syria, come and take them, take them back to your countries and just, you know, deal with them. And they don't want to do that. And if you just see where these uh, uh, Islamist fighters, I don't want to call them, I don't want to use the word Islam in their name, these really barbaric uh, terrorists, um, a lot of them, uh, a major portion of them actually came from the West. And, uh, and uh, in the region, you know, the last uh, more than 10 years, the regional agencies, intelligence agencies and other government organizations have gathered, you know, mountains and mountains of evidence of intelligence who these people are, where they were trained, uh, and who uh, supported them uh, financially, who transported them, and, and so on and so forth. So um, if, you know, the world thinks that the region and the regional uh, countries do not know who these people are and who is behind them, uh, I think uh, they are mistaken. Uh, the, uh, the regional countries already know uh, what's going on. And, Ofi officially, and of course. Officially, of course, the U.S. denies it and the British intelligence uh, services deny it. We won't have time to go into the Xinjiang uh, lies. People can watch our program about the uh, so-called Uyghur uh, genocide. How do you think the uh, Biden administration might be able to sabotage August's uh, BRICS summit. And what hopes and fears do you have for it, the BRICS summit in August in South Africa? I'm not sure um, the BRICS countries and the uh, invited countries uh, will have to listen to, you know, uh, non-parties uh, to uh, the summit. Uh, I think uh, the BRICS will have to just, you know, focus on their agenda and they have uh, uh, a lot of uh, items on their agenda, uh, one of which is basically um, thinking about how to introduce a new uh, currency and also how to expand uh, BRICS. Uh, as we know that there's a, there's a lot of discussion about BRICS uh, uh, plus and UAE, Saudi Arabia and Egypt uh, and Iran were invited and um, um, the the Arab, um, I mean, the Saudi and Emirati foreign ministers uh, were there physically, and the Iranian foreign minister uh, was there physically, and the Egyptian uh, foreign minister uh, connected uh, through, uh, through uh, I think, Zoom or something uh, virtually. Anyway, so so BRICS is the nucleus that is actually uh, trying to uh, drive this global multipolarity. And there are so many countries interested in, uh, in joining. As you know, uh, we have uh, um, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, we have uh, UAE and, uh, and uh, Egypt, and a couple of other Arab countries are interested in actually uh, by joining. So more than uh, 19, uh, according to some sources, around 30 countries are uh, interested. And if the oil exporting countries like UAE, Saudi Arabia, 
and others uh, join, it's going to be a really huge, uh, a huge uh, group. Uh, it will bring the energy producers. I was actually asking about the sabotage. Abraham yeah. <laughs> Hashem, we'll have to talk about the sabotage after the meeting and see what uh, the United States and uh, NATO nations did to the BRICS countries. Abraham Hashem, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for the show. We'll be back on Saturday with a brand new episode. Until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV, on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday. <laughs>